0: Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so when the time was come, when the fullness of time was come, and that's the idea between the Testaments, the, the fullness of time came at the very beginning of the New Testament, but there were 400 silent years there. So if you'll look at your Bible studies, we'll just kind of read through this. There's not a lot of Bible to teach or preach tonight, but this helps fill in the blank. You know, if you don't have some concept of what took place between Malachi chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1, it's like reading two different books. When you open the New Testament, it's like, where did this come from? Um, you know, from Matthew chapter or Malachi chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 1, it's like, whoa, where did all these changes come from? Words that you haven't heard before are all of a sudden littering every page. It's a big deal. And so it's important to understand what took place between the Testaments. So 400 years passed between Malachi and Matthew. A broad outline of this time is given in Daniel chapter 11. Now, in Daniel chapter 11, it's several verses, Like I mean like 50 or 60 verses, there's a lot of verses in there, I'm not sure exactly how many, but it keeps talking about the king of the north and the king of the south, it's not the same guy. It's, there are several generations of the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north stands for the king of Syria, the Seleucid dynasty, dynasty and the king of the south stands for the Ptolemy dynasty, which is Egypt. And these were two of the four generals of Alexander the Great, who was the goat with the prominent horn. Okay, and so, but Daniel chapter eleven gives you several generations of what happened with the king of the north and the king of the south. But don't think they're the same guy. Um, several several sons came and went in that amount of time. Um, but the broad outline is given in Daniel chapter eleven between the Ptolemy and the Seleucid dynasties, um, which were two of Alexander the Great's generals, there were at least six parties that formed in those 400 years. There were no scribes mentioned in the Old Testament. Now all of a sudden in the New Testament there are scribes. There were no Pharisees mentioned in the Old Testament. All of a sudden now there's Pharisees. There were no Sadducees mentioned in the Old Testament. All of a sudden now there's, there's Sadducees. There's Herodians. There's Essenes, which, by the way, are not mentioned in the New Testament, but most New Testament commentaries talk about the Essenes. As a matter of fact, many people speculate that John the Baptist was an Essene, and the Essenes like to consider John the Baptist one of theirs because they want the fame attached to his name. Um, But the truth is, I have been in Qumran, where the Essenes met, and uh, the tour guide said, there's no proof John the Baptist was ever even here. And so no proof that John the Baptist was an Essene at all. Um, We'll talk a little more about them later. Then there were the zealots. One of the disciples, as a matter of fact, was a zealot. Uh, He was a political zealot, a nationalist, insurrectionist, and uh, a guy that took matters in his own hand. He he, uh, carried the little blade with him, the Sicari blade, where he could assassinate people at will. And, uh, and, and he thought he was doing God a service, you know, to, to stab a Roman, if it was a Roman official and he could kill him, why he thought that was a, a favor that he was doing to God. And so there were at least six parties that developed during this 400 years. And matter of fact, most of those six parties developed during the second half of the 400 years, not the first half. It was like in the last 200 years before Jesus came that these parties developed the use of the Hebrew language declined. Um, Greek and Aramaic became the trade languages of the day, and largely this is because the world powers changed. Remember in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, Daniel revealed that there would be four Gentile world powers, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And uh, so Babylon had fallen, Medo-Persia came, Persia lasted for a while, then Greece rose to power, and uh, and then, of course, toward the last hundred years before Christ came, Rome had taken world power. But understand, the Grecian language and the culture is what was left over from the reign of Alexander the Great. So most of the people in the world now speak Greek. Maybe they don't speak it that well, They understand it. They can use it to trade a bag of beans for a bag of rice. (laughs) You know, they they can get along with it. Um, Many cities in Palestine were given Greek names. There were cities like Sebast, Apollonia, um, Scythopolis, and Panias or Paneas. And uh, those towns, many of them, didn't have many truly Jewish people living in them. Mostly, they were Gentile cities lived in by Gentile or Greek and later Roman citizens, Um, not a whole lot of Jews lived there, and if they did, they were considered disreputable. They were Gentile cities inside the borders of Palestine. What did a good Jew do when he came to one of those cities? He circumvented it. He went around it. He didn't travel through it. He didn't want the dust of the streets on the sole of his sandals. And uh, so there is that. Uh, Just like the Jews wouldn't pass through Samaria, they wouldn't pass through any of these Gentile Greek cities either. Persia and Greece had risen and fallen. Rome was the world power of the day. They actually conquered Palestine in 63 B.C. That would be about uh, 59 years before Jesus was born. Most scholars say that Jesus was born in 4 B.C., and so that would be about 59 years before Jesus was born Rome took over um, took over Palestine. A remnant remained in Palestine, but the majority of the Jews were dispersed abroad. in James chapter one. How is it that James says that? Let me turn there real quick. Uh, Hebrews, James, um, James chapter one and verse one a servant of the Lord and uh, of the Lord Jesus to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And so there you have a picture of the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. Now, there are those that say, oh, no, no, only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin came back from um, Babylonian captivity. But we've addressed that before. That's not exactly true because during the reign of, of Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah, loyal Orthodox Jewish people from all twelve tribes had moved back to Judah. So when they were carried away captive, when Judah was carried away captive, all twelve tribes were carried away captive. And when they came back, all twelve tribes were represented—not in their fullness—but all twelve tri- tribes had some representatives there. Um, so, but understand that twelve tribes were scattered abroad. The Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. Now, I put down the symbol for it because lots of times in commentaries you'll see this capital L, capital X, capital X, that is Roman numerals for 70. That's what the Septuagint was called. And that's the way you'll see it. If you see that capital L, capital double X, understand they're talking about the Septuagint. Now, why is it called the Septuagint? Well, some people say it was the Septuagint because it had 72 translators. Um, and uh, that would be six from all 12 tribes. And uh, there is that. Some say it was because it was done in 72 days. And uh, there is that. Some say it's called the Septuagint because uh, it represents that there are 70 Gentile nations in the world. And uh, none of those can be proven with veracity. All three are decent working theories. Nobody knows for sure why. But it's called the Septuagint, but it's a Greek version or a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. By the way, it is the the Bible that Jesus used. It's the Bible that the apostles used. It's the Bible that the apostle Paul used. When Paul made New Testament quotes, he was quoting the Septuagint. And uh, so it was a Bible in use because it was in the common man's vernacular. And uh, so anyway, it was a Greek version of the Old Testament. That was completed in Egypt. They began it in 277 B- B.C. Um, they did. They began it by doing the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch. And the reason it goes all the way down to 150 B.C. is because the whole thing was not done at once. It was spread out over a period of time. Now, next point, idolatry, which had been a snare to Israel, was completely rooted out of the nation. When they came back from Babylon, nobody wanted anything else to do with with, with idolatry. If you had a, um, a piece of wood with a face carved on it, they were going to use it to light a fire with. They didn't want anything to do with, with idolatry. But what they did struggle with was Hellenism. Now, Hellenism is another name for Greek philosophy. They struggled with Greek philosophy. Why? Because Alexander the Great had conquered the then-known world. And with it, he left behind, everywhere he went, he left behind his philosophical imprint. All of the philosophy of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all of that was left everywhere Alexander the Great went. And uh, so that became the new threat to the nation of Israel. How much Greek philosophy is is woven into their religion, nobody can really tell. Um, but uh, it was a snare. Also, when you come to the New Testament, now we have a strange situation. Not only do we... Not have a Jewish king, but we have an Idumean king. Herod is the king. Now, how in the world did that happen? Well, I'm just going to tell you, I spent about four hours today reading about it in dry, dusty material. And uh, how many would just take my word for it, rather than me bringing those pages to church and reading them to you page by page, the history of Herod the Great? Would you take my word for it? Herod the Great was a great politician. He was a brutal guy. Anybody that he didn't trust, anybody that he thought might betray him, he just had him killed. Sometimes he killed him with his own knife. He killed him himself. But uh, it was easy enough to just order somebody to do it, and he had him killed. So he was brutal. He even had he had ten wives, and some of them he had killed. He had sons, and some of them he had killed. One of the Caesars said, "I'd rather be his hog than his son." Because Herod, an Idumean was like a Jew in that he wouldn't eat pork. And so his hog is safer than his son is. Do you get the picture? Um, Herod wouldn't think of killing a hog, but he would for sure as the world kill a son uh, if he thought the son was maybe going to betray him. And so now all of a sudden in Matthew, you come and you find out not only is Israel back in the land from captivity to Babylon. Not only that, they've rebuilt the temple. They they've rebuilt the walls. As a matter of fact, the walls have been destroyed again and rebuilt again. When you come back in Matthew, but now they have a king that's not a Jew. He is an Idumean. Now he considered himself a Jew because Idumea had been conquered by one of the Maccabees, and Idumea was the Old Testament Edom. Anybody remember who the ancestor of Edom was? The ancestor. If we had to take it back to one guy, who would the ancestor of Edom be? Esau. Okay, so he was a descendant of Esau, and when one of the Maccabees conquered Edom, they forced Judaism upon them. They made the men be circumcised, they made the people yield all of the Judaistic rites, they made them accept the Judaistic religion, so... Publicly speaking, Herod had taken on Judaism, so he considered himself qualified to be a king. What was the problem? He was not the seed of David. God had said that the, from then on, the king of, of, of Israel would always be a son of David, right? Herod was not a son of David. And that was the problem. So, But now you find you've got an Iduman king. Um. And then you find an an official Jewish council that never existed in the Old Testament called the Sanhedrin, and they held religious and political power in the land. That wasn't an Old Testament thing. And something else had happened during these 400 years. The high priest had become a political office. Um, Traditionally, back in the Old Testament, the high priest always existed side by side with the anointed king. There was always a king. He was always the seed of David. And the high priest existed side by side with him, and they worked side by side. He lifted up the hands of the king. The king pointed people to the high priest for religious matters, and they got along fine. Uh, But now the high priest is actually become the religious ruler, but he's also the political ruler, because during these 400 years, not once is Israel governed in itself. What has happened? Well, Israel is now finding itself a vassal state. It doesn't matter who is running the world. Israel is under tribute. They have to pay taxes. And so when Persia was, was governing the world, uh, the high priest governed on behalf of the Persian king. When, uh, when it switched to Greece, Greece, uh, Alexander the Great let the high priest run the people. And uh, even so under Rome, only under Rome, one small thing had taken place. Now the high priest didn't have to be of the right family. He could purchase the office, and in one case, a guy who was a Benjamite purchased the office of high priest, and nobody from Benjamin was ever qualified to be a priest. You had to be of the family of Levi to be a priest. But one guy purchased it. He, He was the highest bidder, and he got the office, and he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So now you've got this situation. The high priest has become a political office. Israel was always under tribute whether they governed by foreign power or not. Even when they appeared to be an independent state, they always had to pay taxes to somebody. And when you have to pay taxes, you're no longer independent. Um, and so that's the situation with the nation of Israel. Uh, Zerubbabel's temple was replaced with Herod's temple. Now actually, it was the same temple, but it was remodeled in such a way and to such a degree that it looked like a brand new deal. And uh, Herod was so unpopular with the people. But, you know, have you ever seen a guy like that that was a beast and yet he wanted to be so popular? He wanted everybody to love him and yet nobody could love him because he was just a beast. And so he set out, I know how I'll get the people to love me. I will remodel their temple. I will make it a place to be loved and honored and respected. I will pour billions of dollars into it, and they will love me. Well, they appreciated the temple, but nobody ever really did love Herod the Great. As a matter of fact, when he died, people were kind of on holiday. You know, it was like good riddance. Um, Praise the Lord for that. And so, But anyway, Zerubbabel's temple was replaced with Herod's temple. Now, he began this remodeling process in 17 B.C., And uh, he died before it was finished, by the way, but it was not finished until 66 A.D. Now, what happened four years later? Four years later, Jerusalem fell to Titus, the Roman general. And when Jerusalem fell, what also fell? The temple was destroyed. And so when Herod finally got it finished and the kings who followed him up finally got this project finished, Four years later, it was destroyed. Um, another, another new thing that you find in the New Testament that you never saw in the Old was a thing called a synagogue. Uh, did this ever occur to you? Why didn't we read about synagogues in the Old Testament? Um, and yet in the New Testament, you know, every city seems to have one. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll point out to you later that synago- synagogues could exist anywhere there were ten heads of households that were responsible for the financing. And uh, so you didn't have to have a big town. If you had, if you had a, a town that had 10 active heads of household, you could have a synagogue. And uh, they governed themselves. It was a uh, self-governing institution. Um, and uh, by the way, there were places of not only worship but learning. Uh, the Orthodox Jews considered learning your chief function in life, more important than making your living, more important than feeding your family, more important than having a roof over your head. More important than, than uh, having clothes on their backs. And more important than any of that was learning the Old Testament law. And so the synagogues were provided for that. They also had provided a system of education. This is really interesting. Um, in Edersheim's book on the, on the life and times of Christ the Messiah, he goes into great detail about how Jesus would have been educated. You know, Jesus and the disciples, the Pharisees said they were unlettered men, meaning that they didn't consider them educated. But that doesn't mean they couldn't read. It doesn't mean they couldn't do arithmetic. It doesn't mean that they were ignorant. It means that they had not been to the same schools that gave the same degrees that the Pharisees had. Um, the Pharisees had either been to the school of Hillel or Shamahi. And they had a big certificate to hang on their wall to show that they had graduated with honors from either Hillel or Shamahi. Jesus had no such letter. Did not mean he was a dummy, okay? One guy said, just because I speak with an accent doesn't mean I think with an accent, okay? Understand that uh, um, lots of people have taught themselves. One of our presidents was a self-educated man, Abraham Lincoln taught himself, and taught himself quite well. And so, pay attention to that. History. Let's go to history. Dispersion had scattered Jews throughout the Persian Empire, and in many cases, they were more like colonists than captives. They might have been carried away captive, but uh, you say, well, what did these world rulers have to gain by carrying away 100,000 people captive? Well, if you read history and, and philosophy... What they were trying to do is every guy was trying to build a world empire. And to get get a world empire, I've got to get all the people to think alike. And the way I do that is intermingle them. So I'm going to take some people from over here and plant them over here. I'm going to take some people from over here and plant them over here. And hopefully their ideologies will begin to merge. That was what was behind it. And so uh, also you you got some slave labor out of those people that you carried away captive as well. Many of those wonders of the world were built with thousands of hours of slave labor, um, and so. But understand, uh, they were they were allowed to colonize. Many of them did quite well. Uh, eventually, many became prominent people in foreign lands. Look how well Daniel did. Look how well Hananiah, Azariah, and uh, Mishael did. Look how well Esther did. Lots of people did really well in Persia. And, and Persia was not the only place where people were carried captive. In 333 BC, Alexander brought Syria under his control. Well, you've got to understand that Palestine was under Syria's control. So when he conquered Syria, he also conquered Palestine and merged it into Greece. After Alexander's death, Syria and Egypt battled back and forth for control of the region. Why was this? Alexander had no son. Well, he had an infant son, but he didn't last long because he was poisoned. Alexander had had another son who was poisoned. Um, And so it was not really a healthy thing to be in the family of a king where you might be heir to the throne (laughs) because you were a sitting duck to be knocked off if you got in the way of somebody's ambitions. And so Alexander had no son, but he did have four trusted generals and those four generals, uh, of those four generals, all four of them took a piece of Alexander's empire. But the two that the Bible focuses on are focused on strictly because they're the only two that had anything to do with Israel's history. Okay, The others are immaterial as far as history is concerned. Only those that had something to do with Israel. Well, that would be Syria, the Seleucid dynasty, And that would be Egypt, the Ptolemy dynasty. And uh, so anyway, that's why Syria and Egypt battled back and forth. Now get this, Syria was north of Israel, Egypt was south of Israel. So guess where all the fighting took place? Israel was the meeting ground. It was the staging ground. That's where all the fighting took place. And so Israel was really important to both Egypt and Syria. And uh, so the, king, king, uh, the Syrian king, Antiochus IV, and by the way, he was about the fourth down the line, uh, his name was Epiphanes, persecuted the Jews and provoked the revolt of the Maccabees who led the Jews in a struggle for independence for about 30-some years or 20-some years, from 167 B.C. to 141 B.C. And uh, so Antiochus Epiphanes, by the way, is the personality in the Old Testament He was considered a horn, okay? And Antiochus Epiphanes was the Old Testament type of Antichrist. And the tribulation that he put Jerusalem through and Israel through was a type of the great tribulation that will take place in the last days. And so Antiochus Epiphanes becomes an important character in that he typifies Antichrist. How did he do that? Well, he conquered Jerusalem, Not only did he conquer Jerusalem, but he entered the temple. And he went into not only the holy place, but the holy of holies, and uh, put a statue of himself there. At least it's believed that it was a statue of himself. It was a bearded god. And he sacrificed a hog on the altar and desecrated the altar in Jerusalem. And this made the Maccabees furious. They raised an army and attacked him. And eventually drove him out. So the descendants of the Maccabees, they were called the Hasmoneans, uh, ruled until 63 B.C. when Pompey, who was of Rome, conquered Palestine for Rome. Caesar Augustus appointed Herod the Great King after the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C. Now he appointed him king, but to be king, you, it, it goes without saying, you've got to win your territory. So Herod took an army and went back to Palestine because a group called the Parthians from the other side of Persia had come and taken over Jerusalem. And so for Herod to be king, he was appointed king if you can keep it. If you can take it and if you can keep it, you can be king. That's basically what Caesar told him. And so Herod did. He, he achieved in war. Um, by, by running the Parthians back home where they came from and taking over Palestine, and, and he became, became the king in Palestine. As a matter of fact, Herod the Great eventually ruled in Judea, um, Samaria, Galilee, even as far east as Persia, and Idumea. He was the one that slaughtered the innocents following the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Remember, he was trying to kill the real king of the Jews. Um, And so uh, that was Herod. He built a new temple, which took 85 years to construct, and finally was finished in 66 A.D. Now let's look at the sects and parties, because probably more than anything else, this will affect Um, what goes on in the New Testament as we read and study the New Testament, as we go book by book through the New Testament. The scribes were esteemed by the Jews. Why? Because they were basically, you have to understand, the job that they did every day was copying Scripture. They had no printing presses, so they had to copy by hand every page of Scripture. And uh, they had several recipes to follow to make sure that they got it right. I mean everything from one guy proofreading another guy to uh, counting the number of images on a line or characters on a line and counting the number of characters on a page uh, and then you hand it to somebody else and he does the same count. You both have to have the same number before you can go to bed at night. You know, it's, it was really a science that they had. But they spent most of their time copying Scripture. But because of that, they became the interpreters and teachers of the Scriptures or of the law. They came into prominence after the return of the captives from Babylon. You don't hear too much about the scribes uh, in the Old Testament because they hadn't risen to prominence yet. These men were bitterly opposed to Christ because they only saw one half of the Messiah in Scripture. They saw the king half. They saw the, the kingly half. They saw the royal half. They didn't see the suffering Savior half of those prophecies. And so they were bitterly opposed to Christ. And guess what? He denounced them for making the Scriptures of no effect by their traditions. They actually developed traditions that trumped Scripture. They carried tradition past Scripture to the point that tradition was honored more than Scripture was. Um, Then there were the Pharisees. They were an influential sect that arose during the period of the Maccabees. That was the last couple of hundred years before Jesus came. They were separatists who appointed themselves the guardians of the law. Now, when somebody appoints themselves the guardian of anything, that's a little shaky. You know, I'm going to appoint myself in charge of this. Um, Well, that's always a little bit of a questionable thing to do. But they appointed themselves as the guardians of the law. They were conservatives accepting the supernatural and, and, the, and the concept of afterlife. Now, that is in contrast to the Sadducees that didn't believe in anything supernatural, and they believed once you died you were dead like a dog or cat. And uh, so, the, the, now the Sadducees were the rationalists or the liberals of the day. They denied the existence of spirits, the resurrection, and the immortality of souls. Now, they were a smaller group of people. Numerically, they were not as as uh, numerous as the Pharisees, but they were ever bit as influential because they held the priesthood, and whoever holds the priest, the priesthood holds a lot of the final say. And uh, so, um, they uh, they were important people, influential people. They belonged to a wealthy to wealthy priestly families. And uh, they were the aristocracy of society. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Now, I'm going to depart from the notes for just a minute to tell you that Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, was the most hated man in in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. And it was because he owned five stores. Four of them were on the Mount of Olives, but one of them was in the temple in the court of the Gentiles, And he had a monopoly on all of the sacrificial paraphernalia that one needed to make a sacrifice. He also had a monopoly on the money changing. You could only use a certain kind of money to pay your head tax in the temple. If you brought a Roman coin or a Greek coin or a coin from any other land, Ethiopia or Egypt or anywhere, that money was no good to pay your head tax, even if it was ten times the amount because it was considered unclean. So you had to, in the court of the Gentiles, you had to change your Gentile money for Jewish money so that you could pay your head tax. And, uh, of course, there's always a small percentage. It'll cost you, you know, 10% to trade your money in. And uh, we saw this when we went to the Solomon Islands. You know, every other week I had to go take a $100 bill and turn it into Solomon dollars. So I'd get 800 Solomon dollars for uh, 100 American dollars. And uh, that would last me a couple of weeks. And then I'd have to go again and trade more money. But you know what? There was always a percentage that I had to pay to get the money changed. Well, all of this percentage went straight to Annas and his family. And he was hated because he was a greedy, covetous man. And uh, he ran this entire monopoly. Um, So they came into prominence, that is the Sadducees, during the period of the Maccabees. And if you read the the fight that went on between the Maccabees and the Syrians, which would be the Seleucid dynasty, that would be Antiochus Epiphanes and his other relatives that were trying to run the nation of Israel. Um, If you you study that, you'll see that that the Sadducees fell down on one side, the Pharisees fell down on the other side. They actually always opposed each other politically. Whichever side one took, the other one would usually side the other way. But they came into prominence about the same time the Pharisees did. But where the Pharisees were the separatists, the Sadducees would have been the aristocratic side, and they would have been the more prominent of the people. Both Pharisees and Sadducees opposed Jesus Christ. Uh, and by the way, he denounced both of their parties. But that was the only thing they had in common. You know, go think about people, if all they have in common is that we hate Jesus. That's all we got in common. You've got to feel sorry for somebody that is there. And and yet it isn't really sorrow that I feel as much as disgust. But it's really a sad thing when all you've got in common is hatred for Jesus. But that's what they had in common. The Herodians were not a religious cult, but a political party. They took their name from Herod and got their authority from the Roman government. They saw Jesus as a revolutionary and uh, opposed him on those grounds. And the Herodians and the Pharisees were in opposition most of the time. And yet in that last couple of days of Jesus' life, the Pharisees and the Herodians both tested Jesus, examined him, and asked him a question, trying to get him to fall. And uh, so they worked together against Christ. Again, the only thing they had in common. Then there was the zealots. Um, The zealots were an extremist group. Now, um, Alfred Edersheim believes this, and I still haven't quite figured out why he believes that, but he believes Simon Zelotes was also a stepbrother of Jesus. That Jesus actually had... Uh, stepbrothers and cousins both that followed him. He believes that four of the disciples were cousins, and Simon Zelotes was a stepbrother of Jesus, and so Simon Zelotes was actually Jesus' brother. Um, And I've read what he said, but the logic never connected. Have you ever read something like that? I saw what he said, but I didn't figure out what he was thinking. Um, Anyway, uh, the, the zealots were an extremist group. They were fanatical. They carried assassins' knives, called Sicari. Um, and they were defenders of the theocracy, and they engaged in terrorism. It was fine if they slew a guy's throat in the dark alley on main, off a of Main Street. It was fine if they stabbed somebody between the fifth rib and the sixth rib. It was fine if, as long as he was a Roman. Um, we'll, we'll do him in. We're doing God a favor. That was the zealot's thinking By the way, it was their thinking, their insurrection, that brought the destruction of 70 A.D., uh, which is exactly what the Sadducees were trying to avoid. Um, And then the Sanhedrin, this is kind of interesting, was the supreme uh, civil and religious body within the Jewish nation. The president of the Sanhedrin was uh, the high priest. And uh, you only needed 23 members to compose a quorum, So you could do business with 23 members. So what's that saying? That's saying even though it was an unofficial meeting that night that they voted to kill Jesus, 23 people is all that had to be there. So Joseph of Arimathea did not have to be there. Nicodemus didn't have to be there for the council to be represented. 23 guys is all they needed. They came into existence during the Greek period of Palestinian history. They dissolved during the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, but then they were restored after that struggle was over. Now this is interesting. They were granted the right by the Roman government to pass the sentence of death, but they were not granted the power to execute it. So they they were given the power to say, we can find this man guilty of a capital sentence, but they had to take him to the Romans to be actually executed, which is what they did with Jesus. Um, Christ, Peter, John... um, Stephen, they were all tried by the Sanhedrin court. Then we come to the synagogues. Synagogues were instituted during the Babylonian captivity. Understand this, their temple had been destroyed. So with no temple in which to worship, Jews began meeting in small assemblies for worship and religious instruction. Again, they were not just thinking of themselves, but their children. We cannot let our children grow up dumb in this pagan world. We've got to educate our children. And so the synagogue was the answer to that question. Understand, not everything in the Bible that is unscriptural is anti-scriptural. Does that make sense? Is the synagogue instituted in Scripture? No. By the way, neither is the Sunday school. Neither are mission boards. Neither are Bible colleges. None of those things are instituted in Scripture. They're all man-made inventions. Are they unscriptural? They are. Are they anti-scriptural? No, they're not. Just because it is not found in Scripture does not mean that God may not lead somebody to do that. Uh, So kind of differentiate those things in your mind a little bit. But uh, understand, in this way, the law or the knowledge of the law was kept alive among the Jews. Uh, The institution of synagogues in all the lands of the dispersion helped draw attention of the Gentiles to the great truths that were trusted to the nation of Israel by God. Um, A synagogue could be established anywhere where ten responsible heads of households lived, and each synagogue was autonomous in government. They elected their own rulers and their own leaders. By the way, um, much of of the thinking of the local church came from the practice of the synagogue. Listen, New Testament. the New Testament apostles had all grown up in synagogues. That was embedded in their thinking. So when it came to beginning churches, they set the churches up much in the same fashion. And uh, you need to understand that. The dispersion of uh, the scattering of the Jews from their homeland was a divine punishment for the sin of idolatry. God told them back in the Old Testament, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will scatter you to kingdom come. Uh, And he did. And so he scattered them. But notice this. it It also accomplished the purpose of God for Israel to be a blessing to the nations, which they had ignored. So it was kind of like when persecution scattered the New Testament believers to do mission work. They weren't doing it on their own. So God scattered them with persecution, and here and there, then they began to carry the gospel. And this is the same thing that happened with Israel and the dispersion. They were scattered all over the world, and where they were, they set up these synagogues. They began to do what we would call church. They called it synagogue, but as they began to worship the Lord, they got the eye of some um, sincere-thinking Gentiles, and they became what they call learners and uh, became proselytes. Uh, And and that's an important thing. Um, In Jesus' day, Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire. They were often wealthy and influential people. Living among the pagans, the Jews were able to win many proselytes to Judaism. Um, These scattered Jews became known as Grecians. Now, there's an important word for you to remember when you get into the book of Acts. They were Grecians. A Palestinian Jew was just a Jew, but a Grecian was a Jew who had been raised in another country. They usually spoke another language. They may speak Hebrew, they may not. They usually spoke Greek, uh, but they were raised in another country. And they happened to be usually more liberal-minded because they had a bigger concept of of a bigger worldview, so to speak. Grecians spoke primarily the Greek language, Uh, And then that brings us back to the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew into the Septuagint, and it was done largely for their sake in Egypt between 277 and 150 B.C. So to sum up the silent years, though there had been no new, new revelation for 400 years, God was not inactive during that time. Listen, often you and I think, I wish God would just do something. God is always doing something. Even when it doesn't look to you like He is, God is always working. He used the Babylonian and Persian empires to migrate His people all over the world. He used the Grecian empire to give the world a common trade language. He used the Roman empire to give the world a strong central government and a system of highways and transportation connecting the then known world. He used the dispersion to infiltrate the world with the basic concepts that would be foundational to the spread of the gospel. What are they? The Sabbath, the synagogue, the scriptures, and by the way, the coming Messiah. All of that was basic to the preaching of the gospel. Though Jewish separation antagonized some, it attracted many others. Now remember this, sometimes you get to thinking, you know, if I live a separated Christian life, that's going to offend a lot of people. And it will, probably will. But there's other people that have a sincere-mindedness in their heart that will look at that and say, I respect that man for his position. I respect him for his stand. And it will draw those who have a sincere desire to follow the Lord. It may offend some, but it will draw others if you take your stand for him. Uh, At the same time, all of these events were developing, hundreds of thousands of people were realizing the emptiness of their pagan religion. And so that brings us to the last verse. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive